You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Well, once again, good morning to all of you. Okay, some of you are reclining a little too far back in your lawn chairs, all right? It is great to see all of you here, though. What a great, great morning. And for all of you who are watching online, either live or later as a recording, um, we're so glad that you've chosen to join with us this morning, too. So I'm curious, as we begin to start our time in God's Word, how many of you have been watching the Olympics this year? Okay, I'd say about half of you, and I didn't see those hands online, but I'm sure you raised your hand, too. So the Olympics, I love them, whether it's the winter or the summer Olympics. There's always so many compelling stories, and I just, I love the competition. I just, it's fantastic. But for some reason this year, I haven't gotten to watch hardly any of it. It's just been a little too busy for us. So I've been going back and watching the recording of some things. And I wonder, how many of you saw the women's 4x100 relay about a week and a half ago? Okay, a smattering of you. That's good. Well, there's some, there's some incredible elements to this story. I mean, there's, there's determination, there's drama, there's conflict, there's perseverance, and it's inspiring. But for those of you who don't know the story, just real briefly, the women's 4x100 relay um, were in their qualifying heat, and as they were passing the baton from the second to the third runner, uh, a, a runner from the Brazilian team actually came over into their lane and affected the, the passing of their baton, and they dropped it. And so, of course, if you drop the baton, you're, you're out of the race, done. Years and years of training, you know, comes down to this disappointment. But they contested it because there was clearly some, um, just a collision that happened there as the baton was being passed with the other runner. And sure enough, they granted them an exception, and they were allowed to run the race again, but now they had to run it by themselves. It was a special qualifying heat just for them. And any track and field athlete will tell you that part of what helps you do your best is competing against the other athletes. So to go out and try to run a qualifying time for the medal round was an incredibly tall order, but that's what they had to do. So they run the qualifying round, and they make it. They qualify for the final medal round, which is fantastic. So then, you know, that comes, and everyone's getting ready for that. And somehow, one of the runners on the women's relay, the United States team, she forgot the spikes for her shoes, and she didn't have any spares. And so the race is about to start, and they're scrambling, trying to figure out what in the world to do. One of her fellow runners had an extra pair of shoes, actually several, but they weren't her size. And again, in these kinds of competitions, everything matters. And so having the same track spikes that you've trained in and qualified in and now are trying to run the medal round in is, is hugely important. So she puts on these shoes that aren't even her size. And so she laces them up. And they go out on the track, and they hope for the best. And, you know, most of you probably know where this is headed. They run the race, and they win by leaps and bounds. And they win the gold medal. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable, and it's fantastic. And it's inspiring. And this passage we're coming to has many of these same elements. It's a passage about determination and wisdom and allegiance and loyalty and perseverance. And yes, in many ways, it is inspiring. But this is once again looking at the last week of Jesus's life. 
And this isn't about winning the gold medal. This is about going to the cross. He's going to win by losing. And the very people who should have recognized him as the Messiah, as the promised one, as the chosen one, are the very ones who are now united in their opposition against him. And we saw this last week as Matt took us through, really, the reality of these two kingdoms that are now in conflict with one another. And we return to that, that same scene, that same setting, here in Matthew 22. And for those of you who want to get out your phones or your hard copy Bibles, um, for those of you online, because we're outside, we won't be projecting those on the screen, so you'll want to have the passage in front of you. But this is Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. And Matt helped us beautifully understand the reality last week that we live in this reality of two kingdoms, God's kingdom and this broken world, this broken kingdom around us. And there's this, this reality that we live in the tension of these two kingdoms. The kingdom of God is near and it is here, but it isn't completed yet. It doesn't come to full completion until Jesus comes back. So in the meantime, we are part of this divine rescue mission in the kingdom of God. We, we go, and wherever we find brokenness as the people of God, we do something about it. We redeem it. We repair it. We, was, we, was, we restore it. We proclaim a God who loves us so much that he takes all of our brokenness on himself, on the cross. He dies the death we should die in order to give us the life that we ultimately have through him, rises from the dead, and takes our brokenness with him. He, he removes it from us, and in its place, he gives us his his righteousness, his power for right living with him and and other people. And all that being said, we still, though, have to live in this world that is broken. And so there's this overlap of these two kingdoms. And Matt, again, helped us see the conflict that happens between the two. And so today, as we look at this passage, there are a number of hot-button issues that will be presented to us that are still hot-button issues in our culture today. Politics taxes, money, allegiance, loyalty. All these things are contained in this passage. It's just so we read it here and we understand what's going on here, the religious leaders are now lining up to take their turns to somehow discredit or disprove Jesus and what he's saying. They're united in their opposition to him, and now they're going to prepare this elegant trap that he's going to step right into. And it seems like there's no escape. And yet the response that he gives is so incredibly profound and practical for you and me as we live in the reality of these, these two kingdoms in this, in this world. And so this is Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. I will read it to you for those of you who don't have a Bible nearby. And here it goes. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, this in itself is a class A broken miracle, but it is miraculous because you have two groups in the Pharisees and the Herodians who would never cooperate on anything. They don't agree on anything. This is like Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell gathering together, uniting against someone. And we would look at that and go, how does that work? And probably the people in the crowd, some of them at least were saying, how does this work? These two separate groups that have very different agendas are united in their opposition to Jesus. And so they're going to try 
to trap him. And this is what they say. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity, which is true, and that you treat and you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, which is true, but they don't really believe that. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? And here it comes. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, a little setting that's helpful for us to have in mind. Is there anyone here who likes to pay taxes? Who just loves to pay taxes? Clearly, we have no accountants here or anyone who works for the IRS or anyone else who would say, yeah, we're for taxes. I'm just teasing. But, of course, none of us want to pay taxes, really. I mean, we don't like to, but there was more going on here than just that. This imperial tax was a tax that was created about 25 years previous to this in about 6 B.C., and this was not a really expensive tax, but it was the tax that broke the camel's back, so to speak, because the Jewish people were already horribly oppressed, heavily taxed. Some scholars have said and estimated that the the Jews who were complying and paying their taxes, which was most of them for fear of their lives, if they didn't, were paying somewhere between 30 to 50 percent of of taxes of of what they had, and they were already impoverished. It It was horrible. And so 25 years previous to this, Caesar decrees that there's going to be a tax throughout his empire on everyone for the privilege of being one of his subjects. And at that point, the Jewish people, already oppressed, already heavily taxed, at least a good segment of them decided, we've had enough. And there was a revolt led by a guy by the name of Judas the Galilean. And what he did was he told everybody, stop paying this tax. Enough is enough. He cleansed the temple and got rid of all the foreigners and everyone who was there. And he staged a revolt. Now understand, here comes Jesus. As Matt helped us see last week, as he referenced, Jesus just finished cleansing the temple. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. There was this expectation that when the kingdom of God came, it would come violently. There would be a revolt. There would be an overthrow. And so the only thing that's waiting here, that's lurking here, is for Jesus to say, Absolutely, don't don't pay the tax. It's a very elegant trap because if he says, pay the tax, then he's a fraud. Then how can he be bringing the kingdom of God? How can he be the Messiah? If he says, don't pay the tax, revolt, then the Romans are going to do what they did to Judas the Galilean, and they're going to completely crush him and his movement. And they'll do the dirty work for the religious leaders. It's a very elegant, sophisticated trap. And yet Jesus sees them coming a mile away. It says, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, which they were, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? And here it comes. Caesar, they replied, and then he said to them, and many of you know this verse, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him, and they went away. Now, this is a remarkable exchange here. 
And there's a lot lurking within what Jesus says. So for starters, he says, whose inscription is on, or whose image and what inscription is on the coin? And we know what was on that coin. On one side was an image of Caesar, and on the other was what this says, Tiberius Caesar, son of God Augustus, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. Now, you would expect when Jesus has handed this coin that he might just not even choose to take it. I don't even want to touch that. I want nothing to do with that. Or maybe he throws it down because it's declaring Caesar to be a god and a false god, obviously, at that. But instead, he says, give what is Caesar to Caesar's, give to what is God, give to God what is God's. And it's a profoundly significant answer. Because what belongs to Caesar? Well, his, his taxes. So he basically says, pay the tax. So what belongs to God? Who or what is made in God's image? We are. So he basically says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but God gets all of you because you're made in his, in his image. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable statement, and it, and it begs the question then, so of these two kingdoms, which one are you in? Are, are you in the kingdom of God? How do you get into the kingdom of, of God? Well, there's a defining moment where you cross over from death to life. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, there in the New Testament, it says that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's talking about Jesus. You enter the kingdom of God when you receive Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior. And so that's why we say that you don't just add Jesus to your life, you make him your life because he has dominion over everything. He owns all of you. And we saw this play out in Matthew 19 when the rich young man comes to Jesus and Jesus says, well, there's one more thing that you haven't given to me as you give me all of you and that's, that's your wealth, that's your riches. So it does beg the question, does he have all of you? In the way you live your life, in the way I live mine, does he have all of you? Do you live your life for him? Because those loyalties, that allegiance will be tested by this broken world over and over again. It's not a question of if, really. It's a question of of when, which begs the next question then. So where is your loyalty? Because to know God, to be in his kingdom, is to live distinctively and differently. So it begs the question, how are you and I living our lives? And this takes us right back to where Matt took us last week. That if you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to be bearing fruit. Meaning you're going to become more like him in what you say and what you do and how you think and what, in what motivates you. And the reality is doing nothing is actually doing something. In that 
this reality that we're all up against, this sinfulness that we all have to do battle with, this selfishness that pervades and permeates us, is something that we can't just ignore. The reality of sin is that sin always grows. According to James chapter 1 in the New Testament, it never stays stagnant. It always grows. So, so much of the fight against sin is just, is just being in the fight. And the remarkable reality is fruit grows too. I mean, to your credit, you're taking in God's word this morning. You're here to worship. You're here to hopefully hear from him and his word. And that, as you respond to that, is going to produce fruit in you. And fruit ultimately prevails. But this begs another question then, is not only where is our loyalty, but okay, what kingdom are we living out? And with some fear and trepidation, I'm going to go where the passage goes here. Let's go after a couple hot buttons. How about with taxes and politics? Jesus goes there, so, so let's go there for a minute. Do you notice what he doesn't say in his response to this trap, this question that was posed in order to paint him into one corner or the other? He doesn't fit into any corner. In fact, he disappoints everybody with what he says, at least those who are out to get him and out to oppose him. The Herodians and the Sadducees, who the Sadducees in the very next passage are going to take their run at Jesus, but they were very much in support of the prevailing governments of the time. They were very, very much invested into politics, but in all the wrong ways. They wanted to perpetuate the broken system that was continuing to to prevail. And so they would have said, well, just keep your head down and pay your taxes. Jesus doesn't say that. He does say pay your taxes, but he doesn't say what they wanted to hear. The Pharisees, whose very names means the separate ones, and the Essenes, another sect of Judaism, which went even further, and they're who we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. They moved out to the desert, had their own community because they completely separated from all broken culture as much as possible. For those who say, well, we just need to withdraw and separate and do our own thing, Jesus doesn't say that's the way to live out the kingdom of God either. And then we have the zealots who, by the way, their movement was birthed by what happened in 6 BC with Judas the Galilean and that revolt. Their movement came out of that. The zealots, they would have said, revolt then. Don't pay the tax. Let's overthrow Caesar. He doesn't say that either. He says, don't withdraw from the political process, but don't be apathetic. And also don't over-identify with it either, which to me seems It's not a question of if we engage the political process, but how we do it wisely and well. And boy, does that open a can of worms. So many causes, so many movements. What should we be a part of? What what should guide us? How do we bring the kingdom of God in every arena of life, including the political arena, in such a way that we introduce people to God, that that we propagate and promote the kingdom of God? that we live in worship of him, how in the world do you do that? How do you do that without over-identifying with politics, but just throwing up your hands and saying, geez, it's, it's never going to change, or this is a lost cause, or at the other side of things, just pursuing something that isn't of God. I mean, it's, it's difficult. Can we, can we all agree on that? But I do believe that as we look at Scripture, there are some broad areas that, that guide us that I think are pretty fairly supported by Scripture, and this relates very directly to how we live out the kingdom of God. For starters, 
we are to be deeply devoted to the welfare of the poor and marginalized. I think we're pretty safe to say that Old Testament to New, God's heart is for those who are on the outside. People who are broken culture would look at and say they're not important, they don't matter, they're not our concern. In fact, if we take it a step further and we take the biblical realities, especially from the Old Testament of justice, which is this word mishpat, and righteousness, which is this word sadaka, and we put these two together, biblical righteousness really looks like disadvantaging yourself for the sake of who the culture would say is the worthless person. Do you live like that? Do I live like that? Because as Jesus followers, that is how we live out the kingdom of God. That's that's part of God's heart. And some of us might rightfully say, okay, well, as I grid that through the political realities of the culture we're in, that sounds pretty liberal. Okay, well, let's let's look at something else. We are also dedicated to the equality of, of all races. That racism is not a skin issue, it is a sin issue. And Scripture is extremely, explicitly clear about that. Old Testament to New. Well, that sounds pretty liberal. Oh, okay. Well, Scripture is also really clear that we are to be for life. We are against abortion. We are against euthanasia. We are against that what ends life. But we are for the nurturing and protection of all life. Well, wait a minute. Now that sounds pretty conservative. Yeah, I guess it does. But Scripture is pretty clear about that, Old Testament to New. And then we're also for the integrity of the family and sexual faithfulness in marriage. And marriage being defined as a lifelong relationship between one man and one woman in a covenant relationship for life. Well, wait, that sounds pretty conservative. Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? And then there's this. As we look at Scripture, again, Old Testament to New, we are called to practice a non-retaliatory, forgiving response to personal offense. Well, who does that? Nobody does that. Yeah, you're right. But Jesus followers do. We are the only worldview, the only religion that says that you forgive personal offense and you actually live that out in your daily life. You put all those things together and we don't fit anyone's box. Isn't that interesting? And what's so interesting, and again, this is not the only passage that talks about these issues, but in this passage, Jesus doesn't fit any of their boxes either. And I wonder if we fit a little too neatly in some of the boxes that get crafted for us that we're expected to step into. And again, as we look for clarity in all this, and again, there's so much to weigh out and wisdom needed in all this for sure, where we do draw the line is when government tells us to do something that is sinful, we absolutely refuse. By way of example, in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when the disciples were told, stop talking about Jesus, stop preaching the kingdom of God, stop living out the kingdom of God, they said, uh, no, we are going to continue to do that, and, and we do that too. But man, wisdom required. We engage this stuff through the, through the lens of Scripture, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, through the wisdom of the faith community. And it's so interesting to me how this passage ends. It says they were amazed at Jesus by what he said and what he didn't say, evidently. And as we look, especially at the Gospel of Matthew, 
people are constantly being amazed at Jesus. And it's a positive term, and it's a negative term. Sometimes they're amazed with these miracles he does, and they're delighting in these miracles or delighting in the wisdom that he's talking about. And that's absolutely great. But there are these other examples, this being another one, where they're amazed because he doesn't live up to their expectations. And, in fact, he disappoints them. And he doesn't align with them. Which then begs the question, what are you doing with your amazement with Jesus? Because someone wise has once said, and I think it's really true, you haven't really heard from the real Jesus until you're offended or until you fall on your feet and worship. There's usually not a middle ground because this God wants all of us. He wants all of our allegiance, all of our loyalty, all of our life. One last Olympic story here as we invite the worship team to come up and as we prepare to respond in worship. I don't remember the sport. I read the article really fast. But it was a story about an Olympic athlete, and her coach is her dad. Her dad is her coach. And they were interviewing her about that and saying, how does that work? How does it work to have your dad be your coach? And she said, basically, my word's not hers, but basically, man, some days it is fantastic. It is so rich. It is so meaningful. It is so significant. I love having my dad be my coach. And other days, I hate my dad being my coach. It's horrible. He's unreasonable. He pushes me farther than I possibly can go. And it's just, it's not reasonable. And there are times I'm angry with him, and I'm even maybe a little resentful of him. But she said, but the common denominator that has prevailed through our relationship, through his coaching of me, through my dad speaking into my life, has been that I've learned to trust him. And I am here today, and I have won this medal because ultimately I trusted my dad. Even when I didn't agree with him, even when I didn't understand him, even at times when I was frustrated with him or maybe even a little resentful of him, I always knew at the end of the day he had my best in mind. And what she basically was saying was, this is what I did with my amazement with my dad. I learned to trust him. So my friends, as we prepare to sing about this great God, and he is a great God, are you in his kingdom? Does he have your loyalty? Will you follow him when it's difficult or even doesn't make sense to do so? Will you, in your amazement with him, not walk away like the religious leaders did, but choose to follow him and trust him? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it exposes our hearts. And thank you that you are the God who wants to call us away from brokenness and call us away from selfishness because you promised to give us something better. And Lord, you know, sometimes it's difficult for us to trust you. But Lord, you have placed us in this world with this overlap of these two kingdoms, yours and this broken one around us. And there is great wisdom needed by us in order to live for you. But Lord, thank you that we don't navigate any of this alone. 
that for those of us who have entered into your kingdom by trusting you and knowing you and loving you, you're with us. Your spirit is with us. And so we ask that you would continue to guide us, reveal yourself to us, help us to trust you, even when it's difficult to do so. Because you are the one true God and you are a great God. And we declare that now in Jesus' name. Amen. He is the one true God. And he is the only God who's worthy of our allegiance and our loyalty and our lives. So now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for this sweet time we've had to be together, to enjoy one another, to listen to and hopefully respond to your word, to worship you. Lord, we do declare you to be the one true God. And as we go now into the rest of our day and the rest of our weeks, would you help us to live out your kingdom, to follow your spirit as you lead us, and to grow in relationship with you and one another as we experience your transforming power. We love you. And we thank you again for this time. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. And we'll see you right here, same time, same place, 945 next week for our combined services. It will be fantastic. Blessings to everybody. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.